Good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're here. Is my mic working? Am I working? Can you guys hear me back there? Can't hear me. How's that? Is that better? Wait, wait, wait. I think I know the problem. It's not on. I just put it on my head. You're trying, you're trying to pick me up from somewhere inside this jacket. That worked better? John, Jonathan, poor Jonathan was totally puzzled. He had no idea. Even you, even you can't fix that, Jonathan. All right. Um, welcome this morning. Uh, I'm glad you made it uh, safely here. Uh, we don't, it's not our practice to cancel church. You don't even have to call uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I grew up in the Midwest. I've uh, been here, done that. So, uh, I, I come when I can. We have pastors within walking distance of the church, uh, and we've been in too many places where, where people um, suffer greatly for this privilege. So, uh, so because we have the privilege of having this space and we can do it, we're, we'll be here. You can plan on it. Um, so we're glad to be here with you to worship this morning. Um, last weekend was our intermissions conference, our a uh, conference where we really focus outward on the ministries that God is calling us to around the world. Let me update you just on the financial part of that. It was a fantastic weekend. We were served beautifully by so many. Um, we auction off a lot of things, uh, and people give money to different projects all around the globe. Here's some of them. The McWhites are in the Czech Republic. I have Wednesday. Those resources help to get them there, their church planting there. Um, some pastors' kids have clothes and tuition in India. Um, our uptown church plant in Martinsville, Virginia, received funding. Bible college training in India, an evangelism box, which is an electronic gizmo for far northwestern China. Um, another Chinese Bible translation project was funded. The Hispaniola Bible Institute associated with Haiti Love in the, in the Dominican. Uh, all those things were funded. Uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is now the Lottie Moon Valentine's Day offering, and uh, $20,000 will go out towards international missionaries' salaries through that, and Uptown Church, our latest church plant, will receive seven grand. You add all those together, and about $38,000 was given uh, last week, so um, yeah. Uh, you should be encouraged. I know the Father is pleased, so... This morning, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. That's where we'll be. We'll try to finish that chapter this morning. Um, I ran across this saying, as you find your way there, have you guys ever seen this? Uh, it goes like this. When I works, I works hard. When I sits, I sits loose. And when I thinks, I falls asleep. Now, I don't even know exactly what that means, but I'm pretty sure the last part has something to do with sermons. Um, <laughs> And I, and I want you to know that uh, I understand that listening to sermons is really hard work, that it is a spiritual discipline that you have to train yourself for, and it's countercultural, um, especially in light of things like this. Uh, let me back that up. Um, in 2000, our attention span on average was 12 seconds. 
Uh, but now, in 2013, it's down to eight seconds. You can see where this is going. It's going to be really ugly in about 10 years. We're going to have zero second attention span. In the office, um, 43% of people abandon lengthy emails in the first 30 seconds. And if you are a long-winded coworker, about a third of people give you about 15 seconds and then they, then they tune you out. So this is what we're up against culturally this morning. I'm going to exceed your attention span by about 300-fold this morning. So it is hard work, um, and it's doubly hard work today. I'm going to preach a sermon about a sermon today. So you're kind of getting a twofer. In Acts 13, um, we have the Apostle Paul's first recorded sermon. He had been traveling and, and preaching for a number of years prior to this, but this is the first one that's written in the Bible for us, and it's remarkable. He surveys really the entire, virtually the entire history of God's people, spans a couple thousand years. He explains how Jesus came in fulfillment of ancient prophecies, how Jesus' death and resurrection is the very best of news. He declares the life-altering truth that our sins can be forgiven in Jesus. He warns against the danger of unbelief, and it's such a powerful sermon that the people beg him to come back and preach again the next week. And if you read Paul's sermon, he does all of this in about seven minutes. Okay? It's a remarkable read in Acts chapter 13. Um, but I know that listening to a sermon about a sermon is going to tax you, um, not only because of our declining attention span, but because... This is a place where spiritual warfare happens, and you are conditioned to think that what is about to be said is probably for someone else, and yet God in His sovereignty has put you here um, on this day so that you might hear this sermon about a sermon that points you to Christ in really, really remarkable ways. So, we're up against a spiritual adversary who's a liar. He's the deceiver of the world, the Bible tells us. And we bump up against that really every time we gather in this room. And so I think we should pray and ask God's favor and mercy on us uh, in light of what we're about to do. So would you bow with me, please? <clears throat> Father, be kind to us. We are distracted, uh, wobbly lot of people. And apart from your grace, we would wander off into places of great harm. Um, be our rescuer today, even in this hour, that our minds and hearts and lives might be turned a bit more towards you, a bit more in line with you. Um, we believe this is the work of your spirit through the word, so we ask for that now, and we ask for it. No less authority than the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 13 of Acts, we'll start in the 13th verse and do our best to get to the end of the chapter. And it starts with kind of a travelogue. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's on the island of Cyprus, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga, came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Let me see if I can put a, a little map to that and make a little sense of it for you. Um, Paul, they started this missionary journey. This is what's often referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. 
They started here in Antioch in Syria. Remember, they sailed down to, to Cyprus, traveled the whole island, and had a remarkable encounter down here that led someone who's essentially the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus, became a follower of Jesus at that point. Now today, that's the first part of chapter 13. They, they went through Cyprus. Today they sail up here to Perga and then travel up to this Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, and that's where our encounter takes place, where Paul preaches the sermon that we're going to kind of listen in on today. Now, we're not told why Paul picked this route or what his, why it was so strategic <clears throat> excuse me, for him to go that way, but a couple of interesting things is that this island right here was his traveling partner, Barnabas' home, hometown. That's where Barnabas was from. And scholars tell us that the guy that they led to faith, kind of the governor of that island, his family lived up here in this area in, in southern Galatia. And so it may be that Paul is following a trail of relationships that's leading him to open doors about the, the good news for, for Jesus. Um, you know, another thing that I'll ask you to notice in this little introduction, a couple of things that are interesting. You notice it's not Barnabas and Paul anymore. Now it's Paul and his companions. <clears throat> and Paul really is taking the lead in this missionary venture from now through the rest of the book of Acts. He'll be the primary missionary that's leading this expansion of the gospel. And there's a guy there named John. We know him as John Mark. He leaves Paul at this point in time. And just make a mental note of that. Paul's going to refer to this later as John Mark's desertion. And it's going to have a great impact on this missionary team of Paul and his companions. But in verse 15, Paul's invited to speak at the synagogue, and his sermon begins in verse 16. Paul stands up, motions with his hands, and says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Okay? So just that quick, Paul gives kind of a cliff note summary of the history of God's people, spans a couple thousand years in that process. Um, and the thing that you notice in it is it's, a, it's God's history, right? God is engineering it all. He's shaping history here. It's God who chooses a people. It's God who makes them great. It's God who leads them out of Egypt. It's God who puts up with them. It's God who destroys their enemies. It's God who gives them land as an inheritance. It's God who gives them prophets and judges and king. God is the central actor in history, as Paul tells it, right? I like the way John Piper put it. He said, Paul is saying, there is a great and glorious God. Know Him. Reckon with Him. Think about Him. He was saying that God is really working in history, 
He's the main worker in history. He's the explanation for the meaning of everything. And so as he shows God acting here, the thing you notice is that every time God acts, it's for the good of his people. Every one of the things he does, he chooses them, he makes them great, he leads them, he puts up with them, he delivers them, he gives them an inheritance, he gives them prophets, judges, and kings. All these gifts and provisions, time after time, we read that God exercises his lordship over all of history for the good of his people. Because he loves his people. And he does all this with a people that it says he has to put up with. Okay, this is not a, he doesn't do it because they're such a great group of folk. Okay, they're people that he has to put up with. It's hardly a deserving resume. The history of God's people of Israel is a history of undeserved grace of being put up with by God for their sin. And then what does God do? He lavishes more and more and more goodness and grace on them. He gives them rescue and land and kings in spite of the fact that he has to put up with them. That history, this little Cliff Notes history summary points to a man. It points to a king named David who is like their dream king. It says he raised up David in verse 22 to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. His reputation was he was a man after God's own heart. And yet, we know, if you know the story of David, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, he wasn't a perfect king. And so God would lavish an even greater gift, an even greater king, through David's son. And this is what everything in history is pointing to. Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance, that's John the Baptist, to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he means I'm not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So what Paul has done in this little seven-minute sermon is point to Jesus as the reason for history. It's what everything is moving and working towards in the history of God's people. When you connect the dots right, You can see that the whole Old Testament is pointing to and preparing for Jesus. He is esteemed as the greatest amongst men. He's exalted above all others. John the Baptist, whom Jesus says is amongst the greatest ever to walk the earth, says he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And Paul says Jesus is is that greatest man in history. There was a book written a few years ago. Some of you may have read it. It's called The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. Jesus finished third after Muhammad and I think Isaac Newton. Paul is saying Jesus is the point, the reason for history. 
It's all about God in love bringing His Son into the world to rescue us. Jesus is number one in Paul's understanding of history. If you want to make sense out of the Old Testament, if you want to make sense out of the work of God in history, if you want to make sense out of the meaning and purpose of life, of your life, it all revolves around the central figure of Jesus. And in verse 26, Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So Paul is inviting them into this salvation to step into what God is doing redemptively in history. And it's, it's a timeless invitation. And it's going to be extended to you today. You can step right into relationship with God today that he's been preparing for you throughout history so that at this moment today, you could enter into communion with your heavenly Father and know God. Okay? That invitation is what Paul's extending to you today. You can know God as your Father. It's the heart of the gospel, the good news. And that's what he's going to explain now in verse 27. Oops. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. So Paul is helping us see that Jesus' death was not an abortion of God's plan. Okay? It was not a failure of God's plan. In fact, it was a fulfillment of it. Even though the rulers missed it, though they read the prophets every Sabbath, the ancient prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' condemnation and His death. Their acts of unbelief were used by God to accomplish what the prophets said must happen. So if you went all the way back to the book of Genesis, Moses says that the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman, or bruise the seed of the woman. It's a prediction of the suffering of the Messiah. Daniel, the prophet, predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be cut off from his people. King David and the prophet Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would be betrayed. Isaiah prophesied famously that the Messiah would die for the sins of many. Here's that prophecy in Isaiah 53. The Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul is saying this was the point of history, was that this should happen. It wasn't a failure. It was the reason that all history was unfolding, was to bring Christ to be our sin bearer. And, and unbelievably, it gets even better than that. He says, but God raised him from the dead. He didn't stay dead. And for many days, he appeared to those 
who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So they're eyewitnesses of this event. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And now he's going to cite some Old Testament psalms that predicted the suffering and the resurrection of the Messiah. He says, it's also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption or let his body decay is the idea behind that. For David, King David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So God raised Christ from the dead. This is the the heart of what Paul is sharing here with the people in the synagogue there in in Antioch. He died according to God's plan, and he was raised according to God's plan. And Paul elsewhere would say as many as 500 people saw him, which rules out any kind of hallucination um, hallucination or, or such. There's a uh, licensed clinical psychologist, his name is uh, Dr. Gary Sibsey, and he writes, he says, I've surveyed the professional literature, peer-reviewed journals, articles, and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. Okay, just doesn't happen. Groups of people don't have hallucinations. Individuals do, but groups don't. So how do you explain 500 people seeing the risen Christ? I think the, the best explanation is that He rose. Okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Just as the prophets predicted, His body would not see corruption or decay. It's not in that tomb. King David's is. If you go to his tomb, what's left of his body would still be there. It saw decay. But one greater than King David is here. He is risen. And that resurrection changes everything. I love the way Tim Keller talks about the significance of the resurrection. He says there's something about Christ's resurrection that really offers something unique. He says religions that promise a kind of spiritual future or spiritual bliss only offer consolation for what you lost. But the resurrection of Christ even promises the restoration of what was lost. He says, you don't just get your body back. You get the body you always wanted but never had. Okay? You don't just get your life back. You get the life that you always wanted but you never had. Jesus Christ, His resurrection is walking proof that you will miss nothing. Nothing, he says. It's all coming in the future. It's going to be unimaginably wonderful. And the greatest of all those restorations is the restoration to the God who made you and who loves you. He's a God who has been arranging history such that His only Son 
could become the Savior of the world, could become your Savior. Do you believe that? If you do, then the best news ever waits for you. Listen to how Paul says it next. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's an amazing offer. It's a timeless offer. He says, in Christ, you can be forgiven. You can be freed from your sins. There's a a comedian. Her name is Kathy Ladman. And she expresses kind of the a growing view of of religion uh, these days. She says, all religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. And I would say, that's not Christianity. That's not authentic, true Christianity. We proclaim freedom from guilt from your sins in Christ. Okay? We don't declare guilt. We declare freedom from guilt in Christ. There's another atheist. She's a novelist named Margarita Lasky, and I think she got it right. She says, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Okay? Forgiveness is ours in Christ. But you have to, it's easy to wonder, what does God have to do with forgiveness? If I wrong somebody, isn't forgiveness between me and them? David's example really helps me here. Um, If you remember the story of King David, the same King David that Paul's been talking about, in the Old Testament, he committed a grievous sin. He, He committed adultery with another man's wife. And if that wasn't enough, he arranged for that man to be killed in battle, essentially murdering him. So he stole his wife and then murdered the man, had him murdered. And when he came to his senses... And saw how dark what was inside of him was that caused him to do this. This is what he said to God in his prayer that's written in Psalm 51. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So even though he wronged Bathsheba and wronged Uriah, her husband, he understands that supremely his sin was against God, that there was a vertical dimension to that, not just horizontal, such that his sins were ultimately and supremely against God, and therefore forgiveness must ultimately and supremely come from God. And in Christ, it does. The stuff that you did, the stuff that you thought that you're ashamed of, you don't have to bear that anymore. You can be forgiven. The betrayals, the secrets, the lies, they can be wiped away. The Bible says if they were as red as crimson, they can be as white as snow. It can all be forgiven. That's the good news. What do you have to do to be forgiven? 
There's a conversation that went on between Sunday school teacher, one of her students, a little boy named Billy, and she's reviewing the lesson about forgiveness. She says, Billy, tell me what you must do, what we must do before we can expect to be given, forgiven for our sins. And Billy replies without hesitation, first, you got to sin. Okay. That's not the problem that most of us have with forgiveness. Okay. We want to work it off. You can't work it off. You can't be good enough. You can't go back and do it over. You have to run to Christ and give up working it off by your own flawed good works. Trust that God has arranged all of history so that Christ could come into the world and be our sin bearer and carry it away. You can be forgiven. That's why Christ came. Paul would write about it elsewhere. He'd said that Jesus has delivered us, or excuse me, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just a couple pages back in your Bible in Acts 10, Peter, Peter says, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You can stand before God completely forgiven and restored today. You don't have to bear your sin anymore. You don't have to carry it out of this room. Christ died to free you from your sins. And it's interesting what Paul says next. He warns us. The next thing he says in verse 40, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what's said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And he warns us about failing to believe. And it's sad to me that it's become trendy these days not to believe. Um, you know, they, they do a survey called the Freshman Survey of incoming students to our colleges every year. They've been doing it since 1971. Um, 150,000 students are queried. And uh, one of the questions is, what is your religious preference? And this year, or excuse me, in 2014, um, 27.5% of incoming college freshmen selected none as their religious preference. More than a quarter of our, of our young men and women entering college have no religious preference. It's highest it's ever been since 1971. 30 years ago when they asked that question, 10% classified themselves as nuns religiously. And Paul is here issuing a timeless warning. Hey, don't let that be you. Don't be the person who walks away from the offer of a God who loves you and has shaped history so that you don't have to bear your sin anymore. You can be free. What will you do with that offer? Well, our story closes with two different paths in response to that, two different ways of responding 
to what Paul is saying in his sermon. Let me just read how the story closes out to you. Well, as they went out of the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them again the next Sabbath. Paul gets a, an invitation back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. You could substitute the word nations for Gentiles there. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you hear the two groups? It was one group. They... They begged to hear more. Come back next week. Tell us more. They rejoiced. Many believed. Amongst those in the synagogue, there were both Jews and Gentiles who believed, non-Jews. But the emphasis here is on the gospel spilling outside of the Jews over into the Gentiles, over into the nations. It's a gospel for everyone, for every people, just, just as Jesus said it would be. And there's that curious phrase in there about verse 48-ish. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And sometimes when you read that, a question pops into your mind and you wonder, am I appointed to believe? Am I appointed to eternal life? How do you know if you're appointed? And I would say, you know the same way they knew. If you believe, you're appointed, okay? When you believe, know that you are appointed, that the grace and mercy of God should rescue you. And that's how you know. You can't figure it out beforehand. Okay? If, if you sense God prompting you to believe today, then trust that that's His appointment working out in your life. When you believe, that's how you know you're appointed. But there's another group that has a very different response. They try to contradict the message about Christ. They persecute the messengers. They run them out of town, basically. Why, why would they do that? Why would they, why would they respond so harshly? And we're told, um, at one level, they were jealous, right? Whole city turned out to hear Paul. You know, um, growing up, if you were in the church growing up, did you ever have those attendance things on the wall? And it said, like, Last week's attendance, maybe it had the yearly average and it had the offering. So like last week attendance was 75 and the yearly average was 65. And then the next week they put it up and it was 10,000 because the whole city showed up. And, 
And the people in charge start getting jealous. We're running 75 and now there's 10,000. So jealousy was part of it. It's interesting though. Did you notice who opposes Paul? It's the, the what does he, he calls them? The, um, the high, highfalutin women. Um, that's not the language that he uses. What's the phrase that he uses against them? Um, somebody tell me. I'm having a hard time finding it. What's he call those women? Oh, the, the devout women of high standing. Yes. The women's club. The devout women of high standing. And the leading men of the city. And I wonder if their pride might have played out. These are the most important people in the city. They're, in their own eyes, they're probably the best people in the city. And Paul's gospel is not a gospel for the proud, for people who think they deserve God's favor. Um, this is good news for no, who, those who know they don't deserve it, who identify with the fact they are amongst the people that God put up with. That's me. God put up with me. He was more than patient with me. It's a message for people who need grace. And grace just means you don't get what you deserve. You get what you don't deserve, right? That's grace. You get far better, far more than you deserve. And if that's where you are this morning, you need to know that in this sermon and in the sermon about the sermon, we're declaring that there's a grace greater than your sin. It's ready to be lavished on you by a patient, loving Father who shaped all of history so that it could be so, so that you wouldn't have to bear your sin anymore. Now, by that grace, many of you know Christ and you follow Him already. And so the question for, for those of us who stand there is, who do we know who needs this forgiveness? Who do we know who's still bearing their own sin and it's crushing them? You work with them. They live next to you. Some of you, they're in, in your family. Who needs to hear? And what is God asking you to do that they might? Well, it's our privilege today as people who've been touched and changed by this grace to approach this table, the Lord's table, together today. And it is for us a table of thankful remembrance that God arranged history such that our sins could be forgiven by the work of Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. It's a thankful remembrance of a love that pervades history and brings about a grace that is greater than our sin through Christ. Um, so let me invite you to pray with me, and then we'll approach the table and remember and celebrate and worship together. Would you bow with me?